All right, hi everyone. This is Gad Krebs. Uh, thank you for joining us this uh, this evening. It is a great pleasure to be hosting Professor Emeritus Milton Shane um, from the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. He's published widely in the field of South African jury and the history of anti-Semitism. And his most recent book, A Perfect Storm: Anti-Semitism in South Africa, 1930 to 1948, won the Recht Milan Prize for nonfiction in South Africa. Professor Shane is currently completing his third volume, volume on the history of anti-Semitism in South Africa, and he's joining us on the line from Cape Town. So, Professor Shane, firstly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Rabbi. Okay, so the, the topic of discussion this, uh, that we're going to have is really the Jews and apartheid. And uh, I suppose the perspective that I grew up, up until 18 in South Africa on the back end of apartheid um, I, I was born in 1978, left in 96, so I, I got the back end of apartheid and uh, grew up in a family where I suppose we always championed ourselves of people who were very liberal in principle, but uh, in practice, I think our lifestyle, we, we benefited much from the apartheid regime, and even though in, in principle we opposed it, in practice we, we benefited from it. And I was hoping you'd be able to take us through the different kinds of uh, responses from the Jewish community, both it's on the upper level political and official positions, as well as what was happening on the, on the ground, and maybe try to give us the entire spectrum of what happened for Jewry um, during the apartheid years. Well, it's, it's a big question, and the question that's been looked at by a number of scholars, most notably Vivian uh, Shimoni at the Hebrew University of South Africa and the Rajput Community and Functions, which I really recommend to anyone wanting to look deeply at this question, it is a judicious and superb job. But essentially, I think it needs to be said in the first instance that South African Jews, like other whites, were privileged, and right from the time of immigration, by and large, imbibed the sort of colonial master servant relationship. And I'm talking about from the late 19th century, going right through onwards. It, it, it could be no other way. That's what history is. And, Maybe the privileged group, I mean the whites, and, and why the Jews not imbibe those standards. But having said that, they had a record as a minority within a minority, Jewish minority within a white minority, which is very, very interesting in the sense of a great contribution to those who opposed apartheid. But when one looks more deeply into the granular detail, one sees a very interesting picture. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing, we need to bear in mind that when Pierre Balam won the election in May 1948, introducing the National Party to part of government, the Jews had come through their most difficult time in South Africa. And I'm referring to the anti-Semitism of the 30s and the early 40s. It was a very rough time for Jews. They were quite petrified with good reason when Malam came to power. The Jews had by and large supported the United Party. Many were on the left with trade unions and so forth. We'll talk about that later. But they feared the National Party, which had in its midst people who had been wholly opposed to Jewish immigration in the 30s, who had spoken about Jews in conservatorial terms, including Malam in some speeches in the late 80s, so the Jews would hardly stand on the rooftops 
and say that this policy of apartheid is contrary to our religious Judaic teachings, which of course is what informs so much of the discussion insofar as Jews have been historical victims, underdogs, how could they cope with the system based on discrimination as it was as Jews? And surely Judaic values would win out. So it became a problem right from the start. And if you follow the issues, one really looks at two institutions in the first instance. I'm referring to the representative body of South African Jews, the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, which is the voice of the Jews, and then the rabbinate. Now, the Board of Deputies had a long history, going back long before people were thinking in terms of apartheid, I'm talking about the early 20th century. The Jewish Board of Deputies had a policy of Jews could only speak on matters concerning Jews. That is, the representative body of the Board of Deputies would only speak out. They were not a political body other than in protecting the interests of Jews. That was their raison d'etre. Very much like the British Jewish Board of Deputies, on which they modeled themselves when they formed in 1903 and 1904, in the case, 1903 in the Transvaal, before the Union. Now, that became a cornerstone of their policy. And in the 30s, the board played a very prominent role behind the scenes and publicly in defending Jews and trying to deal with the government, sometimes controversially, certainly with immigration. And that was a matter which was within their framework speaking out on behalf of Jews who are Jews. But how could they cope in 1948 with this affront to human dignity which is called apartheid? Could they speak with one voice? Would they get away with it? Were Jews adding in about the inequities of apartheid and the race-based policies? I should say that Jews were supported, as I mentioned earlier, beyond snuffs, who had to be defeated in an election. But that was really because of the class position, merchant people, people in the cities, and people who had by large taken on English as the language of South Africa for them. It's a merchant language, commerce language. And so to say they supported the United Party is much more to do with living in cities, although there was still quite a lot in the rural areas of the town, the so-called Bureau Afrikaans Jews, but most had moved to the city and that would increase through the second half of the 20th century. And they would then support SNAP, and it would be quite apt to support the National Party at that point. In fact, one or two people who did speak after the Nationalists became a public issue in the Jewish media, which was wrong. So that was their position politically. But what about the board? Well, the board fucked off the issue, the moral issue, fully aware of it, onto the rabbinate, because the rabbinate, after, after all, spoke as the voice of morality, that was the vocation of rabbis. And they would have to deal with a moral issue. That's how the board could actually shift the debate away from them. They speak on matters concerning Jews while Jews, the rabbinate hold the moral beacons and give us with it. And of course the record is somewhat catchy. Um, there's no doubt that early on Chief Rabbi Lee Rabinowitz considered the issue carefully, reflected on it, 
which burnt out against the party. There's no doubt about that. But other than a couple of other rabbis, including the reform rabbi, rabbi on the on the immigrant who spoke out and got into trouble in Port Elizabeth with his reform community, uh, most rabbis, and think about it, I mean, rabbis were across the country, dotted across the country, small towns, large towns, not many stand out in the early 1950s or 60s. It's a bit later that some prominent rabbis did speak out. I'm thinking of Rabbi Ben Isaacson, something of a maverick in Johannesburg, but certainly a vocal opponent of the apartheid. I'm thinking in Cape Town of Rabbi David Rosen, who uh, became quite a star, doing three-point congregations, speaking out all the time against the apartheid, developing into faith alliances and so forth. And then Rabbi Sheldon Dutchman, he ended up in Sydney, also spoke out. So, the fact that I can speak about names, and I'm sure there are one or two others as well who spoke up, they were, they were, Grandma Bernard spoke up. But on the whole, it wasn't an issue right in the front of things. And many people, especially the younger generation, by the 60s, were getting frustrated with this. Who were these younger Jews? I would say that many of them grew up in the sort of kind of age intellectually in the post Ashman era, post-1960, where there was an increasing awareness of the Holocaust, and most importantly, the question of bystanders. And a younger generation, these people are now about 70 years old, I think, Jeff Whitelinger and people like that, young activists, Venus Davis, these people would reflect on their position. They didn't have the same fears, they recognised the authoritarian nature of the regime, but they didn't have the same fears as their, their parents were coming out of the 30s and 40s. They were asking questions, and I, I would think that the Holocaust getting into prominence at that point was one of the factors. Add to that, the youth movements, the youth movements, particularly in Papua New played an important role. But then we come to the general population, well, certainly from the 60s, we see a lot of legal activism with Jews disproportionately involved. We see labor unions, young Jews join, playing an important role. We see healthcare initiatives. We see philanthropic endeavors, I think with the Union of Jewish Women there. We see the Black Sash, Jews involved in that in a big way. So what I'm saying is that from the 60s, the Jews stood out prominently. And in fact, it was known by the government. In 1968, the Minister of Police, Lawrence Miller, gave an infamous speech in Potter Street, where he said, I'm watching the Jews, effectively, and we see they're disproportionately involved in student protests. So that's a generation of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. But I want to say something about the older generation, because when one talks about Jews in apartheid and one gets into arguments, and it's often said that the overrepresentation of Jews against apartheid is best reflected in the treason trial of the 1950s and the Rivonia trial that Saul Mandela convicted and others with him in the early 60s. We can say something about that. In the treason trial of the mid 50s, 156 people were arrested on the truth, uh, you know, ridiculous charges of treason going down for years. 
The point is, of the 156, 23 were white, of whom 14 or 15 were Jews. Now, this is a remarkably disproportionate up. Bear in mind that throughout this period, Jews are about 3 to 4 percent of the white population. Now, I'm still answering. So, to be represented of the whites with 15 Jews, is quite remarkable and worthy of consideration and reflection. And the same thing applies to the issue of the Mandela trial, the, the Romania trial, because all five whites arrested were Jews. And this is the sort of thing that people discuss, but then when you dig deeper into it, you find an interesting phenomenon, because those Jews who were incredibly brave to confront apartheid head on, were what the famous Trotskyite historian intellectual Isaac Deutscher referred to as non-Jewish Jews. Now, non-Jewish Jews, these are national people on the periphery of their community, not really involved with the community, not denying they were Jewish, but Jewish continuity and issues like that didn't mean much. We've seen this phenomenon in Europe from the late 19th century. They see it right through the 20th century. We still did it today non-Jewish Jews, and if you look at these people, many of them are just at the age when they're regularly, they're incredibly brave, but they took on the uh, establishment in a way that often saw them incarcerated, and they had to go to exile, the early sacrifices, and so forth. Now, if you take a continuum of behaviour, and one considers this the sort of bravest attempt to confront apartheid, and effectively employed Jewish values, although they weren't necessarily articulated in, in those terms, then one sees that the more involved Jewish people were, the more conservative they were, and the less involved in the removed from the community, the more confrontational and blows they were. So that's an interesting phenomenon. And it's been looked at, and people have looked at them, not only in South Africa, they've looked at Britain, Europe, South America, that looks at this phenomenon of the non-Jewish Jew uh, being activist and try to explain why, what's the motivation behind these Jews actually getting involved. Is it anything to do with Judaic values? Is it anything to do with the history of Jews being oppressed and somehow imbibing this notion that you know you're the stranger and you must be concerned about the stranger? Is it something to do with that? They may not have articulated in those terms, but they might well have had a sense of it. Uh, scholars have also mined the rich autobiographical literature of these brave Jews that came back from exile, many of them wrote memoirs, and tried to dig out is there something in their, in their life, their upbringing, that uh, explained to them and giving Shimoni, as I mentioned earlier, which is the community of conscience, he really. Uh, did a wonderful job in trying to find his common take to this uh, history. And it seems that there might have been some sort of historic empathy, but it might well have been, where he built in the work of, a, of another scholar, James Campbell, it might well have been the process of migration from the old country for the younger generation, the Joe Slover age. They might have come across impoverished, moved into the inner city, Johannesburg, dislocated, alienated, and the Communist Party 
might have been a sort of a famine for them. It broke the alienation. So that could explain at a certain level the disproportionate involvement of Jews in the radical activities, right from the second, first world war, the, the, the international socialist league, Jews involved, the Yiddish branch of the Kandy Communist Party of South Africa, you're talking about the early 20s. But when you read through the 30s and 40s, and then you get this different phenomenon, there would have been more Sabbatarian's age, of Jews having to grapple with this great moral issue. And of course, with time, many left the United Parties and many went to the right or to the left. The Liberal Party, uh, the Progressive Party, of course, Helen Sussman, Jewish, that right of the Bad Deacon, of the Liberal speaking up. But on the other hand, you have Benson Mutter, Jewish prosecutor with the Rebellion Child on the other side. And then I'll give you a figure which people don't seem to know. But in 1977, an important year because it's a year after the uprising in Sovietan, when whites were sort of coiled into the lager. In 1977, a survey of voting patterns in the apartheid elections, one in four Jews supported the National Party. One in four. Now, that was not the figure in the earlier decades. That would have been the night party, which is not to say they were waking up in the middle of the night concerned about the immorality of apartheid. But they got called in, they became part of the, the, the dominant white group, Alpati Maradal, and they feared issues. What about the Board of Deputies, which I mentioned at the start? I talked about how the individuals were part of that. They were fully aware and they debated these things behind closed doors for a long time, for decades. But there were some very little important people on the board. And they couldn't get off the pillow, so to speak. And the Pope, there was a greater trust by the 70s and 80s to speak out more, but the national body and still very well and still use this notion that this is for the rabbinic to deal with. But then things began to change, and in the 80s there was a, a shift generally in the country with the mass uprisings and greater opposition. And you have two Jewish groups forming the Jews for Justice in Cape Town in the early 80s, and Jews for Social Justice in Johannesburg. And they were now confronting in a much more serious way the apartheid system speaking out. And by 1985, the board actually condemned the apartheid unequivocally. 1985, that's uh, five years before the plug ended the apartheid. So the board came on board, but it was too late in many ways, because by then, if you know one South African history, even the National Party was saying that to die or apartheid will end in the as it happened, the ANC were now there, we had a secret talk to the National Party at that time. So it wasn't as brave of saying it to be in the 50s if you had said it. On the other hand, Jews were more comfortable able to say that there was a greater sense of, of challenge which had gone on and on. So those are the issues I would raise in questioning. As a minority, I think Jews, being the people of the book, have examined themselves as a minority in a way that other minorities, the Greek community, Chinese community, the Italian community, don't seem to do. Only the Jews uh, grapple with these issues, and they're not these issues, and, and, and they don't fit in easily in explanations and having a moral judgment about as a whole.
which is something people are inclined to want to do. But if you try and do that, you have to be historical, you have to look at the context and so forth. Mm. So that's really, I can take any questions if that's yeah. arising well. after that I've well, firstly, thank you for that. Uh, that was a great overview. I think um, I can I suppose uh, my experience is much more uh, uh, anecdotal and personal than it is um, academic. Uh, I think that growing up in the community, so I was uh, public schooled up until the end of Standard 8, and then uh, for my last two years, I was at King David. And in my experience of being completely involved within the Jewish community, albeit not observant, but in the Jewish community, there were say like three gr two groups on on the level of the, the high level. You had the uh, the Jews that we were um, ashamed of claiming them as our own. Only when we needed to, we did. So those were the Joe Slovos and the Ronnie Casseroles, who we saw as self-hating Jews. But uh, should anyone say that the Jews were complicit with apartheid, we'd always cite these kind of characters. Then you'd have the Helen Sussmans of the world, who we were all very proud to call our own. But on a personal level, um, apartheid was never part of the conversation in my home or in anybody's home. We never talked about it. It was never an issue. It was never something that we saw as a moral outrage. Uh, my family all voted for democratic parties. And we all, in principle, were told that we should, um, we should treat uh, everyone equally. But um, we all had maids who could not use the toilet in the house. And she had to be in her quarters and um, we would always speak to the garden boy and the girl and I just uh, I wonder if you could make a comment um, you know it's, we to, to hide behind those moral giants who stood up whether they were from within or from you know who had left the community but the majority of the community from my experience seemed to be rather indifferent um, in any major way to apartheid and and I wonder even nowadays, when I go and visit, um, and I haven't been often, but I have been since the, in the 20 odd years since I left, I've only been a couple of occasions. My sense is that within the Jewish community, not a whole lot has changed um, on that level. And, and I wonder if maybe being an outsider looking in now, uh, th that perspective is a bit warped. I think you've really summarized very well the sort of sense of daily life where, where Jews would carry on and uh, not endow the project and embark the normative standards. Again, I stress normative because they're not different to the other white population in that sense. Um, but in practice, they would vote to a progressive party or a nice party, but again, not basically out of moral outrage. But on a daily level, uh, they would certainly be part of the white population. Um, the attestation of using the casseroles and the slovos as a case for their involvement against part of the community is one that was played out and was played out all the time. Uh, it certainly became quite an issue in the South African Jewish Museum in Cape Town and how you represent the community. I was involved in that. Uh, people who you were embarrassed by in the 50s when they were fighting for their lives, effectively these black guys, were shunned by the Jewish establishment, are suddenly appropriated in New South Africa. And by the way, I should say, they, they were quite happy to be a protest. You know, a lot of these people, and it didn't uh, upset them too much that they were welcomed back and put bygones to bygones. However, the sentiment you picked up on, I think you're absolutely right. Now, what about the contemporary scene? 
Again, history moves on, and one can't just look at a frame of history without appreciating time and change. And then one needs to say that the Jews welcomed the ending of apartheid at all public levels and the fall in New South Africa. Many were apprehended, like all other ones, obviously. But they welcomed the change, and in terms of emigration or leaving, I was involved in two studies with the Catholic Church for Jewish Studies at GCT, in which the, one of the questions in 1998 was to a young cohort of 20 to 30 year olds, are you considering leaving South Africa? We'll be there in five years' time and so forth. And the figures were very high for they won't be there in five years' time, and they probably won't be there. Very high. Seven years later, we repeated the study in that question, and the young people weren't even considering leaving, which is 2005. Of course, we took 15 years on, we've been through quite a rough time politically in South Africa, generally the country, with the, the Jacob rumor lost the trade, and uh, the economy even before this COVID matter uh, massively constrained and problematic, and we could work at another major immigration indication that they are, they have been. So it's tied up pretty much with the politics and the sort of ideas of a master class or a white class, like other white people take a long time to end that sense of, uh, you know, superior uh, sense against black people and so forth. Uh, there are Jews that are very active in very positive ways, and there's lots of charities, like the and so forth. So the conscience is there, and very much from a Jewish point of view. But politically, a lot of whites are, are very concerned about uh, the future, and I think they're in for some bumpy times ahead. All, all the whole economy of the country, and it's going to be a battle between the ANC, which is leading the country. So, to put it simply, I think there's a sense that you raised about the family, that's a field addiction, but sociologically, the overview of giving you an issue raised mm-hmm. still remains as a community. In a way, it has a fairly proud record, notwithstanding the everyday interaction of master-servant class. Well, Professor, I, I could literally keep uh, you on the phone as long as you would allow me to, but I respect your time and I thank you so much for taking out of a busy schedule in book writing and uh, agreeing to spend this time with me. It has been thoroughly enjoyable for me. It has uh, sparked more interest in me, I think, as a as a young South African growing up, um, really not appreciating who I was until I left. And it has now been now married to a non-South African and Israeli-American. I've only been able to sort of get an outsider's view of the kind of warped society that I was raised in as a result of this. And uh, as I explore it, um, it's, it's uh, very, uh, I'm very appreciative to have uh, people like yourself to be able to just uh, not so much guide me, but to inform me along the way to uh, bring better insights into the society that I was brought into and raised and how it came to be what it was. So thank you so much. Batslacha with your new book and uh, uh, really look forward to hopefully one day speaking to you again and maybe even one day in person. Thank you very much for the invitation and look forward to speaking again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.